You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, we look back when the wrestler was happening in 2008. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and I just want you to say hello to your mother for me. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and you know what? The other day, Adam, I saw another podcast host over there in the pharmacy. I went over, I said hi, asked what the cough syrup was. It was a completely superfluous bottle of cough syrup. I'm talking six bucks here. I just wanted to say hi. Oh, God. <laughs> fucking scientist that people just listen to. Science teacher, sir. He's teaching the children. Yeah, science teacher. <laughs> yeah, and people just blindly go with this asshole. <laughs> Tell her to get away from the window with the tree. We'll talk all oh, about Okay, it. I guess. We'll yeah, talk all about that momentarily. But... Uh, we have a returning guest on the show, Adam. It's not just the two of us here. We have a man who's been on multiple times, and uh, we're just so glad to see you return to the show, Mr. Tori DePina. Tori, welcome to the show. Come on to the ring. I'm a fucking scientist. You put it in this beaker here, and you take it over there. And then you put it next to the Tom Brady, Brady jersey over there, and then, you know, you science. Uh, I don't know. Like, it, it, yeah, whatever. Let's. Once again, we'll be talking <sighs> yeah. all about that. Uh, but uh, welcome everybody to the Double Edge Double Bill, where basically every single week Adam and I pick uh, two movies randomly at the end of every episode to do on the next episode, based around a general topic. And uh, the topic for today, uh, which was chosen by our patrons, patreon.com slash dedbpod, uh, is the year 2008 in film, which... Uh, you know, we had this between uh, 2001 and 2008 for the patrons to pick. They end up with 2008, and we kind of talked about this last time, Adam. I don't know if this is the best year in a film necessarily from this particular decade, but I think it's one of the more crucial years for film in the last decade or so. I mean, yeah, 100%. I mean, if anything, even if you want to just look at it like this is the year that birthed the juggernaut that is the MCU. You know, this definitely became more of... When indie movies started kind of going away, uh, big big indie releases, and it was all just basically blockbusters from here on out. Well, even then, I would not necessarily argue that indie movies went away as much as I think... No, I'm what... just saying huge theatrical, big theatrical releases or attention. Well, no, I think the bigger thing is around 2008 is where I think you start missing not the indie films, because after this, A24 and Annapurna and the other indie movie companies would come out. I think this is more like the dying gasps of the mid-budget movie because we've talked about this many times, that the only movies that really get released yeah. to theaters are super big budget, 100 plus million dollar budgets, or teeny tiny movies that can recoup budgets. Not so much your in-betweens. Yeah, that's true. There you go again. But, Tori, you are here uh, because uh, we invited you specifically to this episode since um, privately, we've been friends for quite a while. Not since 2008, 
by roughly not too long after that point. Because um, any conversation to have with you eventually comes back to, like, the years 2008 through, like, 2012, I would say, in terms of film. Because that feels sort of like a big prime spot for you in terms of how many movies you saw in the theater and stuff like that. You're, you're a, This is sort of a nostalgic time for you, yes. Uh, definitely. Um, I would say, like, the strongest amount of my focus as far as, like, wanting to go see movies was, you know, between those years, between, like, 08 to 12. Especially 08, because I was, like, I think it was, like, a senior in high school. Um, I remember, like, a, just a lot of films from that year. Um, a lot of genre films, especially from the summer. You know, with the birth of the MCU, with all these co- really good comic book movies, even ones that weren't in the MCU, like, let's say, Hellboy 2. Not to say that there wasn't bad movies that year, right? Of course there was bad movies that year. But it was a really memorable blockbuster of a summer. Like, even August, which is usually like a dumping ground for something mediocre that you could think of, it was like a good month because you had films like Tropic Thunder and Pineapple Express. Like, even towards the end of the summer, you had, like, really good, enjoyable, uh, uh, you know, popcorn fare. You know, and then, of course, it traveled throughout the rest of the year as well. So not to, you know, get too fixated. <laughs> well, no, I no, I agree. I think this summer was also a big one for me. I still remember very vividly getting the EW summer preview issue uh, back when people bought mm-hmm. magazines, children, um, from a Borders. Back when that was oh, also no. a place <laughs> that people went to. Um, and I remember that summer issue so specifically, like, leafing through it, and I was following along as these movies came out and just uh, being fascinated and just sort of like reading into it. This was sort of, I think the year that I became very invested in movies from even more of like a, how much they were making or behind the scenes. stuff. I think a lot of that has to do with Tori, a big reason you and I met uh, our kinship was through a site that used to exist called spill.com, which was a place that made like a lot of uh, animated reviews and also put out audio reviews and stuff like that. And that was a, a big part that would eventually start our friendship and many of the people who I've had on this podcast with. So if nothing else, this was like a very crucial year for me being exposed to both films and also uh, film fans like yourself. Yeah, definitely. Um, I remember just always um, looking forward to, you know, when I'd be home and like looking for either a new audio review from them, new podcast or, you know, animated review from them. Because I remember when I found out about that website, I just binged all their reviews. And that actually really kind of solidified me really becoming like a film nerd um, that year. So, you know, I associate a lot of that, you know, I, I literally met my girlfriend through the website too so it had an impact on my life um alongside my growing love for film so i that's why i always have like a nostalgic attachment to 2008 not as like the greatest year in cinema but probably one of the most formulative years of like my life like enjoying film and enjoying content like this so yes and just to give you all a snapshot of the year uh, a few things first the top 10 highest grossing movies of this year are from 10 to 1. Number 10, Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, a franchise that does not exist anymore. Uh, number 9, Wally, back when Pixar movies went to theaters instead of Disney+. Plus. Uh, 8, Iron Man, which obviously, as Adam mentioned, started the MCU. Um, 7, Quantum of Solace, uh, back when Bond movies didn't get delayed all the time. Even though this one was delayed by the writer's strike, which is also another factor that affected a lot of movies in this year and the next year, for sure. Uh, number 6, Madagascar 2. Number five, Mamma Mia, another sort of mid-budget movie that somehow, like, made $609 million, which is crazy. Uh, For Hancock, back when Will Smith made movies that were very successful, I would argue Hancock is, like, the last of the Will Smith vehicles that, even if they weren't good, made a shit ton of money. Um, And then three is Kung Fu Panda. Uh, Two is Indiana Jones and the King of the Crystal Skull, 
which I would argue even kind of starts establishing the legacy sequel thing. And then number one, The Dark Knight, which was, I remember, one of the few movies at that time that made over a billion dollars at the box office. And was also one of those, like, something you don't see anymore is a movie that's so successful for so long where it was still in, like, the top five of the box office into September and shit like that. So that's a snapshot of all the popular movies. And then at the 81st Academy Awards, uh, the Best Picture and Best Director winner uh, was Slumdog Millionaire, as directed by Danny Boyle, which is a movie that won eight Oscars, which still astonishes me uh, that it won that much. Uh, then Best Actor went to Sean Penn for Milk. Best Actress went to Kate Winslet for The Reader. Best Supporting Actor obviously went to Heath Ledger for The Dark Knight. And then Best Supporting Actress went to Penelope Cruz for Vicky Cristina Barcelona, back when uh, people still awarded Woody Allen movies for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good um, good Oscar season. Um, there's still, like, I guess, a contentious debate because I still feel that a uh, certain somebody that we're going to talk about later uh, might have gotten robbed of that Oscar that went to Sean Penn. I know but... Mark Wahlberg should have definitely been nominated for The Happening. I agree, Tori. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. He sure. talked to the plants with Wahlberg. so much emotion. Yeah. So much emotion. Should have been Mark Wahlberg or John Leguizamo. 100%. Yeah. No, he's the best supporting actor. He should have won it over Heath Ledger, clearly. That's that's what we're all yeah. saying on here. Yes. 100%. Absolutely. I, I, I love math riddles, okay? Even if I don't... You know. uh, but, of course, we should also mention, even on this show, we've talked about a fair amount of movies that came out in 2008. Our very first episode, Adam, if you remember, the very first movie we ever talked about on the show was the original Iron Man. Uh-huh. Yes, and we've also covered Hellboy 2, Jumper... Diary of the Dead, and of course, Tori, your favorite, The Spirit. Ah, yes, the incompetent classic. Yes. Yes, indeed. But... So much. (laughs) We're not talking about any of those movies in detail today, uh, because, like I said, at the end of our last episode, we uh, did our random picking for our good and our bad pick for the episode, and uh, between Adam's choices, uh, we ended up getting The Wrestler as our good pick, which we'll talk about first. And then uh, we'll be talking yeah. about my bad pick of The Happening, which we'll be talking about no. as well. Yes. <laughs> but um, let's go ahead and get into our first feature then with The Wrestler. in there you got a lot of ability have you ever seen a one legged dog you have a beer with me <laughs> one beer if you've ever seen you have a daughter no oh, my daughter she don't like me very much you should call her and you seen me what do you want from me i'm an old broken down piece of meat and i deserve to be all alone i just don't want you to hate me you know the only place i get hurt is out there. I'm really here. The only one who's gonna tell me when I'm through doing my thing is you people here. So The Wrestler came out uh, December 17th, 2008 from uh, director Darren Aronofsky. We've never talked about a Darren Aronofsky movie up on the show at all, which is fascinating, especially because starting off with this one does feel a bit odd, because unlike most of Aronofsky's movies, uh, this one's very stripped down and uh, not a huge a stylistic exercise. This is a very uh, sort of stripped down movie. And uh, Adam, this was your good pick. And I know we've talked about on the show, you're, you're a big wrestling fan. 
Um, why does oh. this one appeal to your uh, wrestling love and heart in particular? It's never been really shown like this in movies before. Uh, as far as what these sort of maybe either the old timers or the up and comers, just the, you know, the shit they have to go through to even attempt to make 20 bucks and just how depressing and sad you feel for them, especially like the old timers, like a Mickey Rourke or whatever, like he's got nothing else but wrestling. And you just are like, fuck, man. And he's got such a nostalgic love for his career and what he's done and everything like that. But he just lives with so much regret, too. And it's really a sombering sort of look at sort of what the industry as a whole, as in professional wrestling, what it really does to sort of the guys who carried the weight of it on their backs for so long, it just spits them out for the most part for every Hulk Hogan or Ric Flair, or, you know, these guys who still are around and still real famous and popular. There's a hundred of them that just are completely gone and forgotten and nobody gives a shit anymore. I mean, and there's still guys who are still doing these indie shows like the Mickey Rourke character in these little banquet halls and stuff like that. I've had back surgeries, knee surgeries, heart attacks, all this stuff, but they got nothing else because nobody gives a shit about them unless they're entertaining them. And uh, it's just, like I said, it's a real sombering, sort of depressing, sad, but very real look at the industry. And uh, Tori, I know you're also a big wrestling fan, so I think did it appeal to you in a similar way to Adam? Yeah, I, I won't say he took the words out of my mouth completely, but uh, he, he, kinda, he pretty much did. Um, I've been a wrestling fan going back to when I was about seven or eight years old. You know, watched WCW, WWF, you know, miscellaneous indies throughout the years. I used to always buy, like, the magazines when I could, you know, scrounge up six bucks to buy it at the supermarket so I could, you know, learn about all the indie stuff that I couldn't see every day because, you know, no TV for them. No one should ever look at this as just being, like, the ominous, like, end destination for what happens to, like, most of these wrestlers. But a lot of them do end up in this unfortunate scenario where wrestling is all they had, whether it's due to just self-destructive behaviors, um, things in the industry that happen out of their control. Uh, no matter what variable seems to, you know, happen, it can lead to a tragic end. There are a lot of people who passed on their 40s, 50s, from like things like heart attacks. I think of one particular, my favorite wrestler, Eddie Guerrero. He died of a heart attack in a hotel room getting ready for a pay-per-view. And he was clean for five years after going through so much and was like a beloved talent. And he still remembered positively in spite of that, you know? Sometimes you'll get like kind of that heroic uh, ending where, you know, you get to go out on top and you get to, you know, have a healthy life and a healthy career afterwards. But unfortunately, through characters like Randy the Ram, you don't get that a lot, you know? Um, but I also would like to say that there's also other levels that you could end up to. You can end up being like uh, the Ayatollah, who's a guy who owns a used car lot, who's networking how to sell cars to people like he does in that movie. Um, you'll end up like Randy the Ram or, you know, you could end up like, you know, a trainer or, or something that involves, you know, your talent still, even though you can't perform anymore. It's like any other industry, I would say. And like and as far as like entertainment's concerned, it just unfortunately doesn't get the respect that it deserves because, People dismiss it because it's quote unquote not a real sport or people uh, dismiss it for it being just a live performance where nobody really gets hurt when it's obviously, you know, not not true. So, you know, this this is a good portrayal of that. It's a dark portrayal. It might be a little 
misguided in certain points as far as like, you know, portraying wrestling as just this bleak, depressing, you know, kind of viewpoint, but it's still a valid one. Well, I, it's interesting you mentioned that because at this time I was not a huge wrestling person, but I remember seeing this movie and it made me at least respect it as what you're talking about as just sort of like performance art that, you know, in a way where especially there's a lot of great sequences of Randy the Ram as played by uh, Mickey Rourke talking to other wrestlers, even in this like smaller indie circuit that he's in at this point after being a huge star in the back in the eighties or so. And I love seeing like all of them kind of plan out their routines where it's just like, Hey, you're going to do this. You're going to put me upside the ropes, all this other stuff. Or even the one uh, rookie guy who's uh, talking to Mickey Rourke, which is like, Hey, I'm a huge fan. So like, what do you want to do? Like they're making sure that you're like, Hey, what are your boundaries? What do you feel like you can and can't do? And I think that sets up a great sort of base that respects the idea that wrestling is this like interesting performance art that people enjoy, but also showing from Randy's point of view about how he's kind of lost particularly the idea of like, oh, I don't need any of those boundaries. I want to still stay relevant, even though it'll make him do some horrific shit, particularly with the match that involves a lot of like glass and the staple gun and all those issues where yeah, I think the, it feels the, the yeah. right where it feels the most kind of like um, the. Aronofsky sort of torture coming out, which to be fair, he was kind of famous for this at this point. This is after Requiem for a Dream and all this other shit. But I think this one at the same time isn't as oppressive as a movie like that on sort of like a, oh god, this is just so upsetting on a like gore and viscera level of sorts. But it still is like very emotionally effective in a way that I really appreciated. How do you guys feel especially about Mickey Rourke's portrayal of this, where this was a big movie for him. This sort of uh, started, along with Sin City, kind of signaled his potential comeback and he was nominated for best actor for this a lot of people said he should have won over sean penn for milk um do you feel like he accurately portrayed that kind of struggle that you've seen from post big time uh, for a wrestler yeah i mean 100 percent. yeah uh i absolutely agree that he should have won over sean penn as well like i said you get sort of where he's got the glean in his eyes that, you know, I was Randy the fucking Ram when he's looking at his pictures in his van, which is also a horrible scene. He comes back from doing a show and he's locked out. But, you know, he's looking at the pictures in his van. He gives, you know, the little action figure to Marissa Tomei. He's got the Nintendo with his old game in it. He was a big, big star, you know, at some point. He's, basically, he's kind of like, you know, a Hulk Hogan or a Macho Man or someone like that would have been maybe at that level, if not close to that level at the time when he was at his peak. And, you know, he still does love the business, but he's still guilt ridden now because, you know, sort of the lost relationship with his daughter or that he's ultimately kind of alone. And, you know, he's got a real dickhead boss and Todd Barry who treats him like shit. And it's, but still Mickey Rourke plays it with such like a muted way I don't muted might not even be the right way, but it's so emotionally just, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Cause it's not necessarily emotionally charged. He's not over the top or anything, but it's just so realistic in, in sort of the way he portrays this guy who's he has all this inherent guilt about himself, but he's still kind of big on himself too. And uh, it's just, fuck man. Every time I watch this movie, I fucking cry every fucking time. And there's, you know, a couple scenes that do it in particular. Like, any of his stuff with, um, you know, Ever Rachel Wood is just fantastic. It's fantastic. And the good thing about it is, too, it's such a good performance and such a well-written script that, yeah, you do feel bad for him, but you also feel really bad for her. And I just love the way that they 
did that. They didn't make it like, oh, no, woe is Mickey Rourke the whole time. Like, ah, he fucked her over a lot. And you can totally see where she's coming from, too. And I, I just think it's just so sharp and smartly written. And yeah, dude, Mickey Rourke just fucking crushes this movie. Now you can see why he was pegged for a major comeback. Doesn't necessarily happen, but you understand why. Well, we loved him in Iron Man 2 and other things. Hey, <laughs> he needs his he needs his Boyd. He needs his Boyd. That's very true. That's a very good point. You know, like Adam, I had the same emotional reaction. I cried at the end. Um, and it wasn't even necessarily what he got, went through specifically, but the fact that a lot of wrestlers that were indie wrestlers that were in that movie, a lot of them aren't even around anymore. Like, you have some of your more famous ones. Like, there's a guy for five seconds who shows a guy in, like, blue hair and blue trunks. That's the blue meanie. He's still around in ECW, from the old ECW days. But a lot of guys like um, Paul Enormous, Larry Sweeney, these guys, like, you know, have died because of either things like suicide, drug overdoses. And these weren't even guys that were able to even make it to the top because of just, like I said before, uncontrollable variables in the industry that just kind of blockaded them from where they could go as far as like, you know, their talent was allowed, you know, their, 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 that their talent could bring them to, I should say. And just like a lot of emotions hit me of just seeing there. And, but also at the same time, a lot of happy emotions hit me because a lot of wrestlers that were in that movie have become successful wrestlers in WWE. You know, when Mickey Rourke's sitting on the couch for his last match, a man by the name of Claudio Castagnoli is sitting there. He goes by the name Cesaro in WWE. He's one of the best technical wrestlers on the planet, and he's at the top of the stage now where he belongs, you know. Uh, same for uh, a wrestler that he had spoken to when Randy goes to see a, a wrestling match. Then um, he sees two wrestlers in the ring. Um, a wrestler by the name of uh, Ron Killings, also another success for, story for uh, WWE. So it's like you're getting, you get lights and bits and pieces here when you kind of know the reality behind the scenes. And it's just like you're getting a full emotional wave, you know, happy, sad, and it just, it overwhelms you by the end. And that's one thing that I'm not going to lie. I was like kind of wary of seeing this movie again because it's, it's hard. It's a hard ride to sit through, uh, good and bad reasons. It's great that Mickey Rook got his comeback story. It's great that, you know, you get another great movie from Darren Aronofsky. And it's also sad because any, everything this film showed in wrestling showed a piece of a reality of what a wrestler or someone who dedicated his life to this type of art went through, you know, good or bad. And you feel it. It hits you, especially as a fan. Yeah, I mean, even as a non-fan like myself, I, I, it's still just like this really emotional, powerful story about Randy, where, like, the, the tragedy is kind of similar to what you're talking about with, like, oh, you see some of these wrestlers that have a bit of a brief glint of hope. To me, like, what's so tragic about Randy is that, like, I could see this dude living not, you know, a very extravagant life like he used to lead but at least like a comfortable smaller life there's so many moments where you can kind of see that like even i love the first scene where he works the deli counter and apparently a lot of that was improvised by mickey work of just like him uh, talking to the customers and having like a lot of fun just like hey why don't i throw this over to this guy or uh, here you go sweetie it's this macaroni salad or whatever you can see that like this dude is charismatic and could still make that work in his smaller regular life but he still has this sort of addiction to being the wrestler he used to be as opposed to kind of enjoying like what his life can be now, especially after the heart attack. There's just like, you know, I maybe can't wrestle anymore, but I can still have something comfortable. Even like the early, the, the scene where he goes with Evan Rachel Wood over to the, uh, like Jersey park or whatever, again, for the first time in a while. And there's so much emotion packed and it's just like, look, I'm, 
I'm a fucking broken down piece of meat, but I really should have cared about you. I kept pretending you didn't even exist to get you out of my mind, but you did. And I'm such a fucking asshole for doing that. And I want to make it right. And you could see a world where it's like, you're, you're so close to it, dude. Or even like some of the stuff from Marissa Tomei, where some of it is kind of like the, the unfortunate thing of like, oh, you think the stripper likes you kind of thing. But also as things go along, it's like, oh no, she does actually care about you. And if you were to like stick around for a second and not like yell at her about like any kind of potential like misgivings because you can see her point of view about like her trying to raise her son and all this other stuff. Like you could see a world where Mickey Rourke leads not an extravagant life, but like a very comfortable, quiet life. But he just has that addiction to becoming a wrestler again. That's what leads him down all his worst paths. And I think that's what's so interesting is you get a full look at who Randy is for warts and all. And I think that leads to like, especially by the ending of this movie, why you're so emotionally overwhelmed by him doing his wrestling match that probably kills him because it was like, dude, you don't need to fucking do this. But at the same time, you get why he wants that, why he has this love of wrestling as a craft, but also why it's killing him. It's this great emotional tug and pull that just feels so authentic and beautiful. Fully agree. Yeah. I, I can't, I'm, I'm always left speechless when I see this film, you know, just for that, for reasons like that alone, you know? And, um, that, that scene when he's on the, uh, the pier talking to his daughter, like, that minute that minute to a minute and a half sequence of him just spilling his guts out like that won him two out of the three major acting awards for that scene i believe in my opinion alone just because of what he left out there in that scene it sucks even more when you watch it the second or third time because you know unfortunately you know what's gonna happen you know and it hits it even hits you even harder because it's like yeah he's a fuck up he still cares but he's also he's still a fuck up you know and the only thing that he's not a fuck up at is the thing that's killing him. And it's just this like, it's this double-edged sword. And um, like I said, that's a reality for a lot of wrestlers in the, and uh, for a lot of top drawing, you know, former top wrestlers in the, in the industry, you know, um, thankfully they don't always end up like that, but a lot of them do. So, I mean, even in that senior Mexican tour, he definitely, as the character and as an actor, just let it all out there and just became ultimately vulnerable. I'd argue that that might be Mickey Rourke's best performance, period, um, in any movie he's done and anything he's done. That quick little two-minute scene, I think, is the best work he's ever put out. Oh, I mean, it's no um, wild orchard, but, you know. That's, <laughs> that's true. It's no Expendables monologue where he's giving tattoos. <laughs> Yeah. Say, you know, low key, that's a good monologue though. I think he might have, he was the best actor in that movie just for that monologue. <laughs> yeah, no, he he's really good in it. But you know, the thing is, it also helps that he's sort of backed by just a masterful Marissa Tomei as well. I mean, she is so fucking good in this movie, and especially the way she plays sort of the dual roles, to where when she's you know the dancer the way she even her tone of voice and her body language and the way she carries her eyes and everything is completely different than when she's Pam, you know, he's at the jacket shop with store with her and they go to the bar and everything. It's just, it's so good. And it also reminds you of, Oh, that's why Marissa Tomei is an Oscar winning actress as well. She's so good. And the thing is he's back. It's not just her, the caliber of acting, especially in the side roles in this film, is some of the one of the best little ensembles 
easily of that year. How much do you fucking hate Todd Barry? Yeah, he seems like a small man who likes to take advantage of the medium amount of power that he has. I love particularly the bit where Mickey Works walks into his office and he's watching porn. She's like, you want to try that again and knock? And then he knocks and he just like opens the door and shows Mickey Rourke out of the way. <laughs> He's such a dick. He's such. What do, you, what do you need to buy more tights? Oh, you motherfucker. I want to work weekends. Oh, so isn't that when you sit on people's faces or let them sit on your face? Oh, my God. Uh, just random ones, too. Like, you don't really get to see him just because there's a lot of, like, those shots where it's kind of panned far away, so you can't really see it. But, you know, Mark Mogulis as the, uh, he's kind of like playing a depressing version of, like, Mr. Leahy from Trailer Park Boys, just being this, like, hard-ass, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's, like, landlord, I, I don't know Trailer Park lingo, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, guy who runs all the lots and shit, locking him out of his, like, house or whatever, just the, these ran, like, it's, it, it's such a good cast, um, or, or even, Judah Free, Freelander was in it, but I didn't really recognize. I, him, I recognize him. He's the guy when he goes to the little convention who's talking about him, like, "Oh yeah. man, are you going to do your your big thing, bro? I I can't wait because like I'm going to take all my boys with me." You can probably not tell because he's not wearing a hat, and you can see his bald spot or the glasses or the glasses. That's true. Yes, uh, but he he kind of fits perfectly. So I think even just like all the random people that he even like runs into just feel like actual people. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of wrestlers in there or even just like the people in the crowd, like particularly the guy who has the prosthetic leg, just like, use my leg, use my leg. My girlfriend lost her shit when we saw that scene and <laughs> he's fighting Necro Butcher, another, like he's a, he's a deathmatch fucking legend, by the way. Like yeah, that, that stuff was just that, that scene in general was just like another day at the office for uh for a worker like him. But uh, <laughs> like that use that leg scene. That's just, that's the only time you actually get any sort of, of like 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 humorous enjoyment out of this whole movie even if you're not even like a deathmatch type just because of how like severe and how dark this film gets well there's even like, there's other few other people like the guy who he has like the big deathmatch with i also love too where he's just talking to him up front just like you mind if i use the staple gun he's like a, a staple gun yeah like staple gun like, does that hurt well like when going in it hurts and it's kind of right you're gonna lose a lot of blood <laughs> <laughs> just like really dark kind of comedy that's there he's had that he's had that conversation with at least 50 to 100 other plus wrestlers too and imagine right. how their reactions might have been they might have been a little more over the top than uh mickey's reserved reaction like uh staple gun like no what's <laughs> well, the thing all so, the conversations yeah. feel very natural even especially with like uh, marissa tomei like when they're talking to each other like even the bit where they're talking to each other when she's trying to do the dance and it's just like have you seen passion of the christ no i haven't oh it's a great movie you gotta see it <laughs> or even like i really agree with uh, adam about uh fucking Evan Rachel Wood does not get enough love for this movie. This is such a stellar performance for her, particularly the scene where, like, he had fucked up and not gone to dinner with her, and he goes back in the middle of the night to her apartment. And she goes full out with just, like, you know what? I don't uh, feel sorry for you. I don't want you back in my life. I want you the fuck out. Look at me. I don't want to see you again. It's such, like, that breaks your fucking heart because you get it. Because, like, yeah, he kept fucking you over, and he was trying... Like, it seemed like, from your point of view, like, oh, he enticed me back and then he left me dry again and he's just like so but you also see like why he ended up doing that even though it's like such a thing like oh you fucked up dude but you, i get why your like ego and your vices led you to this point it's such a sad fucking scene it is such a good sad scene it sucks when you watch it again and it's like he's just he's he came in from his night out and he's like all fucked up and hung over and he's like you know oh actually no no before that when he's just like he's about to go home actually he just like Stay home. You already know what's going to happen, but, like, you're really in this guy's fucking corner because you want this, like, 
you want this like modicum of happiness to happen for this guy. But it's just it just wasn't like he says on the boardwalk, man, it just wasn't, you know, it just didn't happen. It wasn't meant to be or, or, or whatever, you know, you want to whatever phrase you want to use. And it's just like it just leaves you fucking deflated, man. And you kind of want to be like Marissa Tomei at the end of the film and just kind of like walk away and not see him in the ring. But, you know, obviously, as viewers, we don't get that choice. And, you know, we're, we're there for the ride from beginning to end, you know, as depressing of a ride as it is. Everybody in this movie, especially sort of the three central with Evan Rachel Wood, Marissa Tomei and, and Mickey Rourke, they all make these different decisions that all, I mean, ultimately boil back because of him and the decisions he's made his entire life. And yes, it sucks and it's sad, the ending and stuff, but you you, like Tom said earlier, you get why he does it. Because at this point, his daughter doesn't ever want to see him again. The girl, the woman he's in love with, kind of like they had that big falling out thing. And yeah, she came to see him real quick, but he doesn't think it's really much of anything. And, and he's already committed to like, this is it, dude. If I'm going to go out, I'm going out on top for once. I'm going to do it with people who care about me and people who love me, and I'm going out. The, the line in that final sequence that devastates me is just like, I only get hurt out there. Yeah. Oh. God, and that and that whole finale, I agree, is like such a phenomenally like just filmed sequence where you're like right there with Mickey Rourke as he's like clearly having a heart attack of some sort. And uh, shout out to Ernest Miller who plays Bob or the Ayatollah, um, who during that whole sequence is like trying to both portray his wrestling persona again, but is also extremely concerned. Like, dude, we don't, we can stop, but you can just pin me. She was also yeah. a real professional wrestler in real life. Ernest, Ernest, the Ernest the, exactly the cat Miller. Okay, he was. Yep, that was dude, him, you watched it if you watched him in like '97 on like WCW Saturday Night, or if it's he was on James Nitro. Brown. Exactly James the Brown. the James Brown dance. Sonny Ono as his manager. Like it was always exciting when he was on, man. And that was him in his older, like you know, uh, late stage of his career, man. But seeing that personality again, like I missed that because you know a lot a lot of dudes like him are missed in today's wrestling. You know, so. but yeah, he was. You're right, Thomas. It's such a harrowing scene, man, where he just knows. Like, he's like, dude, we got to stop. And he tells him, like, go home, man. Go home. Like, you dude, gave him enough. Yeah, you know. And, Thomas, for you, I don't know if you know what go home means in wrestling lingo. It means pin me. Like, end the match, dude. Pin me. We're done. Oh, I mean, I thought that just means they left the ring and then went home. I thought that's what that meant. Thank you for clarifying that so much to me. <laughs> Look, man, in wrestling lingo, you're a fucking mark. Um, no, the <laughs> filthy. Well, to be fair, it's more filthy casual. But you know, he was trying no, to. Be nice. yeah, yeah, right. But uh, fuck, fuck Thomas Tory. I mean, why do we even talk to this guy? But no, it's. Uh... <laughs> we should make our own wrestling pod. We should we should leave this and make our own wrestling podcast. What's this show? Fuck Devil H Double. <laughs> You're right. You know, I'm just like a broken down piece of podcast meat. You you can't yeah. bother with me no more. <laughs> <laughs> before we go into final thoughts did want to ask with like this being the first aronofsky movie we've covered and as i mentioned before this is very unlike his other stuff i was curious how do you all feel about his directorial style especially compared to his more like stylistic other movies it's minimalistic I... as fuck and i love it for that uh, just these just these random wide camera shots so you barely can see who he's even talking to or who that actor is the fact that it like the minute i see a wrestler and i'm like oh maybe they'll pan and focus more on them and then just immediately cuts off away just to you know focus on randy you know for good reason because it's about him he's he's the wrestler it's minimal but it's effective it's like less is more is the approach with this movie um and i like it for that reason 
You know, I mean, what, it was a budget like six million bucks on this. It's well shot for sure, but you know, you know, no fast paced editing, and it's just giving you everything raw. It damn near looks like almost like a documentary. Following Randy, if this movie was polished and everything, I don't think it would have sort of the same uh, impact it does. Yeah, I, I love the way it looks. I love the gritty nature of it and the fact that it's just in your face, but also not super flashy. I think it, I think it's pretty much perfect. Yeah, I think it's a really good companion piece to the movie he would follow this up with was uh, Black Swan, which is the exact opposite in terms of, like, it's very stylized. It's very much has, like, this sort of colder horror aesthetic to it in a way that I really love. But it they, they fit so beautifully together because one is about the sort of quote-unquote lower art form of wrestling and has this more, like, gritty, stripped-down aesthetic, whereas the other one feels like, oh, this is a cinematic ballet in a way that, like, really is trying to talk about, like, the quote-unquote higher part of art. But at the same time, how both of these art forms ends up crushing the main protagonist at the same time. And I think, like, I would love to see him maybe go back to doing something a bit more stripped down like this, um, especially even though I, I love something like a mother. Um, I think it still would, like, maybe benefit him to maybe go back to something like this, or um, even especially after, like, I believe not too long even after, like, A Black Swan was, like, Noah, which is one of the more fascinating movies to ever exist. We're just like, what? No studio would green like this except for Darren Aronofsky doing it. Where there are rock monsters, but also it's like this weird philosophical movie about the nature of being Noah, the Noah's Ark guy, <laughs> and it stars Russell Crowe. One of the most fascinating films to ever exist, that one. But we've been talking quite a bit about The Wrestler, so I think it's time we went into final thoughts here. Tor, your final thoughts on The Wrestler. The career-defining performance for Mickey Rook. Um, it's a great vehicle for... The other actors as well, Evan Rachel Wood and Marissa Tomei. It's a great supporting cast. Um, down to just like smaller actors you don't even see in the movie for five seconds, but you're like, oh, hey, that dude was in Office Space. Oh, hey, that's, you know, Hector from uh, uh, Breaking Bad. That's This is this is, uh, this is this is a nice surprise here or here and there or whatever. But um, as far as like the film itself, it's a strong directed movie, strongly written, beautifully acted, wonderfully shot. It drains you, literally, of your emotion, that by the end, you're just like, you know, you're left drained, obviously, but the overall experience of seeing the wrestler, it's something to behold, honestly. It's like, what else, what else can you say? You know what I mean? Like, I still think to this day that, you know, Rook got robbed of the Oscar for that movie. I would even say Evan Rachel Wood definitely got snubbed for Best Supporting Actress. Um, I think uh, Marissa Tomei got nominated, but she didn't win. I don't, I don't know who beat her, but... Um, the, Kate yeah. Winslet for The Reader. <sighs> Okay, that is, see, now that's bullshit. So, <laughs> so there you go. So, um, and to me, it's almost like a weird uh, to see an actor win, like, the BAFTA, win the Golden Globe, and then just completely get dismissed for uh, the Oscars. And, um, I mean, I get the reason why Milk won. We all know that. Um, they were making a statement, but I kind of felt like the merit should have won the award on that one um that's how great of a performance it was and we haven't really gotten anything from mickey rook ever since that like even holds a candle to that um meanwhile aronofsky has still you know done his thing i, I haven't seen noah but you know black swan followed right after that so but it, it's a great movie it's one of the best films from a strong year in cinema uh you know and that's saying something so you know great film adam 
Uh, yeah, no, this is probably my favorite movie of the year as well, uh, that being 2008. Basically a perfect movie, man. I love the entire cast. I love the story it's telling. I love the fact that it's it, not necessarily subverting expectations, but when you hear it's a movie about a wrestler starring Mickey Rourke and he's trying to make a comeback, I don't think anybody really expected this, a really emotionally heavy sort of real character study of a movie and um i mean I, I just love it i think it's it's like i said i think it's a perfect movie from top to bottom um i don't watch it very often because i don't feel like crying all the all that much even though i cry all the time but i don't really want to make this to make me cry all the time uh but this is one of those movies that while i'm watching it i will audibly say fuck this is a good movie and yeah that's i mean that's basically you know how how i'll end it it's just fuck this is a good movie. Yeah, I, I second the fuck this is a good movie comment as well. I, I definitely agree. Um, it, it just feels like, it, as this weird kind of like isolated movie about just like, hey, this is the world of wrestling. This is what you, you see, like the creative juices that would drive people to want to wrestle, but also the vices and the regret they build up over time. It's such a down-to-earth, very naturalistic, beautiful movie about just that kind of self-destructive tragedy that's there. And it only works as a tragedy because it's not like tragedy porns people have accused Aronofsky of making tragedy porn a lot of the time but this and I think a lot of his other movies his best movies manage to like really show you like oh this is why this person is so driven by this in a way that's either like fascinating or really tragic and you just really are immersed in why they are motivated to do what they do even though you can see like a world where it's like you don't have to do what you do and you can still be happy the tragedy is just seeing them like you know what whenever I try and do that it really just hurts me and I can keep doing that thing I love that might kill me, but God damn it, I still love doing it. And that that's a beautiful sentiment that I think Rourke portrays beautifully, and as we mentioned, Marissa Tomei and Rachel Wood, everybody in the cast plays off of it as well so wonderfully. In a way that, yeah, it is, is one of the better movies of this year, uh, for sure, and definitely one that uh, still holds up uh, from that time. But... Um, before we move on to our next feature that totally holds up and is one of the best films of the year as well, let's uh, hear a promo for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. Welcome to the Ring of Thunder, the most electrifying wrestling podcast in the Thunderverse and the ESO network. From the power of the people's host, Sexy Thor, critics say, it doesn't matter what the critics say. You already know you're in for a hammer swinging, burrito eating, mic blazing, hair raising time with this weekly wrestling adventure, WWE, AEW, Impact, and whatever else I can possibly fit. If you hear what the Thunder is talking. Alright, now let's talk about M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening. Excuse all the teachers? What is this? There appears to be an event happening. Science will come up with some reason to put in the books. But in the end, it'll be just a theory. We will fail to acknowledge that there are forces at work beyond our understanding. So, uh, The Happening came out June 13th, 2008, Friday the 13th of 2008. 
um, and was uh, M. Night Shyamalan's first R-rated movie, uh, which was a big thing in the advertising for some reason. That's pretty weird. We haven't talked about M. Night since we did our M. Night episode back at, that was episode 37 of our show, Adam. <laughs> so it's been a long time. Oh, I know. Yeah. Right? That, that was a while Why the fuck are we still doing this? <laughs> a question I ask every time I turn on the recorder. But um, this was a, a movie that had, in this point in his career, he had done, um, obviously, like, Sixth Sense and Unbreakable were more well-received movies at the time, and uh, even Signs was also a big moneymaker. But this is following both The Village and especially Lady in the Water. So this is him at kind of like a more dire point for his career. Up to that point. Um, and this was very much a movie that, despite being pretty successful, $48 million budget made $163 million, uh, was sort of the bellwether for, like, M. Night's name becoming kind of advertising poison. To the point where, like, advertisers would not put his name on, say, The Last Airbender didn't have his name on it as well, After Earth, a movie we talked about. Right, they kind of tried to hide his name. And then later on, he would have a bit more of a comeback once he got to, like, The Visit and Split and some of his lower budget movies um adam would you say maybe uh this is his worst movie or uh one of his worst how do you feel about the happening it's one of the worst i don't know if i think it's the worst the last airbender is his worst movie i don't think there's any real question of that that's a dog shit of a film and after earth is really bad but the happening fits right up there with these as well this movie fucking sucks dude like it fucking sucks I remember thinking it sucked when I first saw it, and it still sucks. It is the suckiest bunch of sucks that ever sucked. It is just, yo, all right. This piece of shit opens with two minutes of clouds and bland-ass, like, text. What the fuck? Like, nothing, nothing. And, and then, it, dude, all right, yeah, I'm getting all heated now. All right, yeah, no, I hate this movie. Well, well, all right. So, Tori, uh, you haven't had much uh, time to discuss M. Night Shyamalan on this podcast. Uh, how do you feel about him in general, but also about the happening particular in his career? I mean, pretty much just like uh, I think his first three films are really good. Um, I know people are kind of eh on Signs, but I love Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, Signs. The Village is an interesting film. Um, I think it's got probably one of his best casts, like as far as like overall talent. But it, it kind of started off the whole thing of like, oh, he might not be Hitchcock. He might have just gotten lucky with those first three. <laughs> I never saw Lady in the Water. I haven't bothered with it. Uh, I saw this, hated it when I was, um, you know, like, like when I saw it that summer, when I saw it that year. Um, I thought it was just stupid. I didn't, just incomprehensible garbage. But recently reviewing it, I've kind of gotten a, a, a bit of a respect for it just for like the overall experience. You know, there's just moments where I'm it's weird. I'm creeped out. It's it's terrifying. I'm also laughing my ass off at dialogue non sequiturs, mostly about food. Between Zoe Chanel talking about tiramisu to the weird plant guy talking about hot dogs to uh, the, the the World War Two widow talking about Mark Wahlberg eyeing her lemon drink. Uh, just these weird moments it's a movie of pure cinematic denial because the entire time you're watching this, you're like, this is a B movie premise. This is a B movie performance from like a lot of these actors. This is B movie dialogue, but it seems that everyone is kind of having an idea of it or like a cognitive idea of it, except for M night Shyamalan M night Shyamalan for some reason has thought to himself, I'm still making a horror movie because I am great. I am the Hitchcock of my generation. 
And you see that in full force throughout this entire movie, even though it's still entertaining as fuck. It, it manages to be entertaining as fuck in spite of him. And that's the thing that, like, really interests me about this movie. It's like, I've seen reviews where people have said that this is, like, a big-budget Ed Wood movie. And you know what? I can see that. It doesn't mean that the flaws are any less flawed than they were before. But it makes it a little more enjoyable when you watch it with, like, that perspective. You know? And um, I, I think this is, like, a really solid film in retrospect because of that. And um i don't know if this is like the worst uh, uh or at least one of the worst he's ever done i think i disagree with adam there i think there's a lot of things i i would contend there's a lot of things that make this film creepy horrifying hilarious uh just this like weird uneven like bag of <laughs> of like of tone shifts I, that, that, that it's like kind of hard to describe i'm so fascinated by the happening uh, the first time I saw it, I still remember vividly, I saw this as a double feature with my father, uh, along with The Incredible Hulk, which was also another movie that came out around the summer, and it opened the same day as The Happening. And I remember, just like, he was so excited, even if, like, after Lady in the Water and all that stuff, he was like, a huge M. Night fan, and he was just baffled watching it. And I was also quite baffled by it. Ever since when I've gone back and watched this movie, I find it so fascinating, because I agree with a lot of what you're saying, where it's massive miscasting on so many levels for our main leads. And so many of the performances are so odd in a way that sometimes feels intentional, potentially for jokes as well. There's points where this movie's trying to be funny, but also points where it's not intended to be funny and still funny at the same time. Or even when they're trying to do jokes, it feels just so poorly put together. It feels like an alien constructed jokes. But at the same time, it's a really well shot movie. This is the cinematographer was Tak Fujimoto, who had worked with, like, Jonathan Demi a lot. This is the guy who shot Silence of the Lambs. And even as, like, M. Night, I don't think is that good of, like, an actor's director at this point in particular. I think he still has a lot of, like, capability with, like, framing shots. In a way where it's like you mentioned, this is a B-movie premise and some very bad performances, but it's a really good-looking movie at the same time. So it's just this weird mesh in a way where I would definitely say it is not near the worst at this point of his career. He has made so much worse after this point. I would put it around, like, Glass, which is a movie I have very similar feelings about, where there's, like, oh, my God, like, there's moments that are, like, really brilliant. There's moments that are so baffling. It's just, like, you thought this was a good choice. Some of the performances are great. Some of them are fucking terrible. It is just this weird mesh of so many things that, like... The big reason I would say this is not one of his worst is I am never bored watching The Happening. I am consistently engaged, whether in the intended way that he wanted to or most of the time not. But I am completely fascinated at this car wreck of a movie. <laughs> like I said, it's fascinating. And also just Mark Wahlberg, but he's a science teacher, which immediately, like, it doesn't mix. It's like Denise Richards is a nuclear... Uh, uh, physicist you don't you don't buy it immediately <laughs> like there's no reason to and it's just like it, you're just getting like the mark Wahlberg performance when he's opening up in his like his classroom about science and he's like you know in five years yeah your nose yeah your nose is gonna be like ugly that's nature that's science this is mark Wahlberg being mark Wahlberg, and he just happens to have a job as a science teacher and that's I don't know who thought that was a good idea. <laughs> like, one of the worst casting choices I think I've seen in a movie. Um, I can't disagree with you guys uh, more. I, I, dude, this movie bores the fuck out of me from sort of opening till end. Uh, and I, you know, it's probably anchored a lot because of sort of the casting choices, because 
I don't give a flying fuck about any character in this movie. So therefore I'm not invested in anything that's happening. And so I'm just like, eh, but I will agree. It does look the shit like it does. It is a really slick looking movie. And there are some, some kind of cool moments as far as like, you know, driving through and there's all the people hanging or the shot of the guys leaping off the construction site, you know, things like that. Like it does look cool. And some of it is genuinely sort of unnerving, but it ne- none of it ever comes together for me. And I mean, in any fucking way, dog, I mean, we got to stay ahead of the wind. What? <laughs> yeah, it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> uh, see, the thing is, I don't think it was written intentionally. I, I not at all. Don't... I, don't, I, I do not disagree with that. It is not intentional. It is so fucking funny, though, to see them run against the fucking wind. It is so funny to see Mark Wahlberg have his, like, huge breakdown. Of the, oh, God, I got to think about it. Oh, be scientific, douchebag. Like, that's not intentionally supposed to be, like, funny. But of course Mark Wahlberg is going to fucking do that because you're the M. Night Shyamalan thinks that's the guy to cast the fucking science teacher. That's what I'm saying. This film is entertaining in spite of M. Night. And that's what makes this fucking fascinating because none of this shit should be entertaining. None of this shit should be an actual decent viewing yeah, experience, but, the, but the it manages to be. You mean like Wait, the what? Doobie Brothers song when he Hilar- sings? That's so hilarious. He's just like, that's what a normal person does. Old black water, keep on rolling. Of course a normal person uh. does that, right? Of course he does. No, that's the thing. It's like, we're not <laughs> saying this movie comes together in a traditional way. This is a so bad it's good movie to us, at least. You don't find that at all? No, I do not think this is a so bad it's good movie at all. I, I Like, honestly, this movie is just intolerable for me, man. It, it's... I get what you're saying. I, yes, it is a phony concept. That, you know, Mark Wahlberg is a science teacher and staying ahead of the wind and everything. But like I said, I'm already so checked out by the time even that happens to where I just don't give a fuck. Like, it, it's literally the movie almost becomes white noise to me while I'm watching it. I will give this movie credit for obviously the way it's shot. And it does have a really good score. The score to this movie is actually pretty damn good. Um, but... That's about all I got for it, man. I mean, it's a, look, dude. All right. The thing is, <laughs> it's only the Northeast that's being affected. Like, why? Why is it only the Northeast? Why after three months that everybody in the Northeast, not everybody, but you got to figure possibly hundreds of thousands of people all killed themselves. Three months later, dude, it's just business as usual. Cars, busy streets, everything. This movie is so perplexingly stupid to me in every way that it's just... I, I, oh. Well, I think it's because like he wants to evoke a lot of like 9-11 sort of imagery with particularly the first like five or ten minutes or so. But here, isn't that part of the problem too with the script in all honesty and maybe the way it's carried off is... Because I remember there was a, a big thing going around where is it actually happening or is it mass hysteria that's happening and that's why these people are blah, 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 blah. Well, the thing is... I don't understand why anybody ever thought it might have been mass hysteria. They blow that theory out of the water within the the very first newscast blows that theory out of the water. And yet that is still something people hold on to that. Well, maybe it's just in their heads and it's sort of this blah, blah, blah. Like, what the, yo, fuck this movie, man. <laughs> well, I, I actually think, I think that's where the movie is kind of like at its most like genuinely creepy to me is earlier on where it is sort of that like people held around, particularly in the school. Like, they talk to Alan Ruck, who, by the way, randomly shows up as, like, the main administrator. <laughs> um, but um, they, they're they talking about just, like, look, we want to get the kids out of here. We want to, like, they try and keep it into the lower t- hushed tones. I think that accurately 
depicts that kind of moment of uncertainty of just like what the fuck's going on what are we doing that that kind of worry and hush i think does capture like sort of that like in the moment of 9-11 thing from outside an outside perspective quite well i just think it's more after that point when especially the movie just like obviously we'd been introduced to mark Wahlberg and the whole like nose thing happened at that point but i think the moment zoe de chanel's like poor guppy face enters the screen is really where the movie starts going down in the way of, like I said, like a so bad it's good movie where these two people, like there's no way that these two would have any chemistry with each other. Like at all. It's where they really got to the point where they're married. (laughs) And they clearly don't. Like even as actors, right, right, but don't. but it's like it's not even that they don't feel like oh two adult people that would be this way. They feel like children. That's what's so fascinating about the yeah. performance is the way that they act toward each other. It's like two eight year olds talking to each other, and they're like boyfriend and girlfriend in the way that like a seven year old couple would be. And that's what's so fascinating to me, and that's why I consider this like such a so bad it's good movie in the way of just like oh we're going in all these weird directions with particular like that couple. That casting of that couple, the way the couple interacts with each other, they don't feel like actual human adults. Which is why, once again, I'm never bored by this movie. Because it's just like, (laughs) these two people are just like, how do you exist in the real world and have jobs? (laughs) This just doesn't make any fucking sense. You know, you brought up the the scene with all the teachers and Alan Ruck. And that's also one of my favorite sort of just perplexing lines where he's like, you know, it seems like there's a terrorist attack on Central Park. And Mark Wahlberg zoomed in really close on his face, like, Central Park? That's weird. Why is that weird? <laughs> like, I don't understand. Like, that can't make me laugh. Like, why would that be weird that it's Central Park? Like, to me, that if there was a terrorist attack, that makes sense. New York, Central Park? I, I would be like, oh, fuck. Wow, Central Park? That's weird. Oh, no. Well, especially with, like, you mentioned the close-up. You can tell this is the guy who, like, shot a lot of Jonathan Demme movies. Because there are so many shots that are, like, straight up in people's faces, including Mark Wahlberg's nostrils could just fit like a fist. They could fit like a (laughs) fist. Those nostrils, I swear to God. Like, I want to go buy a box of Whoppers at the fucking movie theater. Just go and see how many I can fit in each fucking nostril. It is outrageous. It is outrageous. Like, dude. I don't see, need to see this motherfucker's nose hairs. Like, I really don't. And he is flaring them the whole time. Because, you know, he's a science teacher. Oh. <laughs> um, Tori, you haven't talked in a bit. How do you feel about Wahlberg and Deschanel's chemistry and performances? Do they feel like human adults to you? I mean, no, they don't. But, like, with Mark Wahlberg, it's just like, I, like again, he's just being Mark Wahlberg. But... It's Mark Wahlberg pretending to be a science teacher. At least with Zoe Deschanel, like, I get her performance. I think there's moments where she's actually adorable. Like, no different than I think of her performance in New Girl, which is, you know, there's tropes that I see. I was like, oh, okay, I've seen that in an episode of New Girl. It, it's it's oddly touching sometimes with scenes that involve, like, her. When uh, they're at the train station and they're about to board and John Leguizamo kind of hints that he knows what's going on between them. And she kind of like has like this moment where she's kind of like pouting, which some seemed like something that was right out of an episode of New Girl. And I was just like, oh, that's adorable. But it's also wait, these are adults. Well, also, it just doesn't it doesn't fit in this like weird, like very quote unquote tense, like uh, sci fi horror premise. Like, oh, my God, people are like killing themselves when they get exposed to this thing. And like especially my favorite bit with Deschanel when the hot dog man is talking, Frank Collison, who's just talking about, like, you know, hot dogs get a bad rep. They got a cool shape. They taste pretty good. You like hot dogs, right? And just cuts his Zoe and she just mouths, no, 
I don't. Yeah, <laughs> just like, just... What, what is this, like, comedic, like, side shot doing in the middle of this movie? That's, once again, it's this weird thing where, like, M. Night kept saying, oh, this is, I wanted to make the best B movie ever or whatever. And I, I think, like, that, it feels kind of like a cop-out because the way that this movie is, like, it's shot so well and it has, like, clear, like, money behind it. Like, this doesn't have the excuse of being the best B-movie ever, because, like, it costs, like, $50 million, dude. Which makes all these weird decisions that feel straight out of an Edward movie all the more fascinating, because at this point, M. Night still has enough cachet to be like, nope, nope, we're not gonna make any changes, great, let's do this scene, where fucking John Leguizamo is looking at Zoe Deschanel, just like, just like, okay, I'm gonna give you your ticket, but has all the malice of just, like, you murdered my mother. <laughs> like, what? Why are we doing this? Well, yeah, and even that scene where, you know, he's like, I got to go find her. She's somewhere in Jersey, I think, and blah, blah, blah. You know, and she's like, okay, we'll watch her. You better not take my daughter's hand unless you mean it. Like, what the fuck? That's still, like, the, dude, like the strangest fucking line out of that movie. It's, so it's like, don't take it if you mean it. It just gets in his face. Like, like gets in her face. Like, Ebony like, Shyamalan saying he wanted to make the best B movie. That rarely ever fucking works. It's like if someone is like, yeah, I'm trying to make a cult movie. It hey, never he's, he's full of shit. He's full of shit. If he ever says, like, I was trying to make the best B movie, he's full of shit. Like, it, 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 the thing is, but people do try to do that. They do try to like, look at how self-aware even like the Sharknado movies become became and things like that, where they they're in on the joke. Now they, they're trying to make the joke movies or they're yeah. trying to make sci-fi B movies. It never fucking works. It's always unsuccessful because once you're in on the bit, then it just becomes forced. And that is something that really happens. No, I disagree with that because I think that came out not too long after the reviews were coming out. Everyone said he was hating it. And that feels more like a scapegoat thing as opposed to... Yeah, like Tommy what... Wiseau then. Like a Tommy Wiseau sort of idea. Right. I think that's more what it is. and Because when I watch this movie, I don't see any of just like, oh, intentionally trying to be like bad. I think there are points where he's trying to be funny and it comes off very bad. Like the cough syrup line that I did at the beginning of the show. That whole monologue, it's trying to be funny. But in a way where it's just like, oh, these are two characters kind of interacting off of each other. But the way that, like, Mark Wahlberg is delivering it is just, like, this, this weird thing where, like, no one would assume that you're trying to be funny. They This just, like, feels like an alien's way of delivering humor. Which is like, oh, yeah, I saw this cute girl at the pharmacy and she gave me cough syrup. And then even, like, Joey Dishno's reaction of, like, are you joking? And he just, like, he bobs his head like he's a bobble <laughs> Like, it's trying to be so funny, dumb. but it's so poorly executed in the way where it goes back around to being funny because of how baffling that decision is. It seemed to me, at least when I saw it, like, he's being very antagonistic, and she's like, are you joking? And then he does the stupid nod, and she's like, aw. I'm like, wait, this cannot be a real conversation between two, between a married couple. Adults, even. <laughs> like, but I'm too busy laughing my ass off because it's so fucking just absurd. It's beyond absurd. To, to the point where I'm very sure this is the inspiration for, like, uh, Mark Wahlberg talks to animals on SNL. This is so, like, what Andy Samberg is specifically parodying. And I think it's also what gave us Mark Wahlberg doing comedies, because not too long after this is, like, The Other Guys, or Ted, or some of these other things, where he kind of takes advantage, just like, oh, this is what people see me as being funny for, I'll do that. As opposed to when he's trying to be funny in this movie, it comes off more like this is a performance that, like, Dirk Diggler would have given if he got a sci-fi movie post his porn career. <laughs> like, if he did a shitty... Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's fair. Because yeah. well, the problem is, dude, Mark Wahlberg is usually not great. He, like, he's capable in a lot of things, but he's usually not great. I mean, The Departed, okay, I'll give you that. But it's like a five-minute role. He's great in it, but 
the thing is, in this movie specifically, like you might be right, that might have been the point of you know uh, maybe some levity or something with the cough syrup thing. But he has the same fucking tone of voice throughout every yep. line he delivers in this movie, to where it's undiscernible. Like, what the fuck is going on? Like, is he joking? Is he being silly? Like, you're going to murder me in my sleep. What? No, man. <laughs> like, what the fuck is this? But then even that. Okay. So, Mark Wahlberg somehow figures out that large groups will be affected other than, you know, quicker than smaller groups, if smaller groups at all. Right. So we get that whole thing, you know, blah, 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 blah. By the way, the soldier is killing everyone and himself and nobody's fucking reacting. Uh, by the way, played by Jeremy Strong <laughs> of Succession fame. So then they get to this house with this old lady and it's just one person and she's affected by it. Like, I don't understand the logic behind, like, I, 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 guess, I guess, why am I trying to understand the logic in this movie? That, that's probably my biggest problem with it. Because... It's fucking stupid. But then it's like, oh it, oh, it only affects people in large groups. What about the girl that was on the phone in her house with all the doors closed? It affected her. Like, what the fuck is going on? And then, where, so where are we on the map? We're right in the middle of it. Oh, let's all run out into the street in the open air. <laughs> fuck cause. Let's just walk across the field. Well, even, like, I love that scene you're talking about with, like, the, the girl on the phone. Because, like, I love the fact that the poor actress who's playing the mother is trying to give a good performance of this. Like, she's genuinely oh, she's trying. Really right, she's yeah. really going for it, and it's really like, oh, you're sucked up with the emotion. And Mark Wahlberg's just like, tell her to stay away from the window. <laughs> yeah, I know. Honey, go to the window by the, where the tree is and look out. Tell me what you see. No, tell her not to go to the window with the tree. She's like, tell, uh, tell okay, her to walk honey, away. don't go to the window. Like, why are you listening to this schmuck? Tell her to buy a Brady jersey. Yeah, you're right, exactly. <laughs> Tell her to go get some Sam Adams. <laughs> hey, by the way, say hello to your daughter for me. What I love, too, is the fact that, like, apparently M. Night wrote this with him in mind to play this part, which is baffling. Because there's, like, what Wahlberg works is, is more of just, like, these kind of, like, Bostonite, like, lower-class guys who are mostly douchebags or they could have like a potential heart of gold or whatever depending like him as a science teacher makes no sense the only like the person who i think would have fit what m night was trying to maybe go for was like a paul rudd of just like someone who kind of has to deliver funny moments but also could be believable as a science teacher like i i think that's the kind of person you want to go for even for zoe deschanel he really wanted amy adams which i love that mark Wahlberg was being interviewed about the fighter and he's just like she dodged a fucking bullet (laughs) About that he's been very vocal about how poor the sort of uh, movie was for him and sort of his point in his career. And I think that's what's so fascinating. It's just that, like it is him being cast and also some of these choices like the logic things you're talking about, Adam, or even just like certain things like even Betty Buckley who plays that old lady's performance, which just like that I don't give a shit at all about the logic being inconsistent when she's delivering gold like no, don't take things that aren't yours or trying to steal from me stab me in my sleep shit like that that's so bizarre you eye in my lemon drink is one of the weirdest <laughs> oh my god <laughs> the food non sequiturs in this movie they're all they're the most they're some of the most memorable lines like this <laughs> this is an accidental b movie and i just the only thing that sucks is that it could have been like the greatest b movie if you know somebody didn't have their head up their ass
and the director. You know, in terms of like, oh, Ed Knight's head being up his ass, I don't think you get this movie unless you have somebody like an M. Knight who is particularly up his own ass at this point, or like you mentioned, the cinematic denial of it. Like, this could only come from a guy who was kind of desperate to retrieve that acclaim that he had, but is still at the mm-hmm. same time in denial about, like, no, I, I I deserve all that acclaim. There's no kind of issue here. I'm glad that, like, at least he's mentioned the the issue where it's just, like, uh, I think it's a uh, consistent kind of a farce humor, like The Blob, the campy 1958 debut of actor Steve McQueen, featuring mysterious growing amoeba that takes over a small town in Pennsylvania. This is his quote. He's still saying all this stuff. The key to The Blob is that it just never takes itself that seriously. I think I was inconsistent. That's why they couldn't see it. That's the thing is, like, a movie this fucking weird could only come from M. Night, who makes all these weird decisions like this. If you want the good version of this movie, I would say watch his recent movie, Old, which is, like, I think the much better version of this, I think, because he cast people who could more applicably apply his weird dialogue, mainly because you have, like, Vicky Crapes and Gail Garcia Bernal who have an accent, so they can kind of disguise the fact that it's like, oh, they're just kind of, like, newer to this country. They can't quite speak English as well as, like, a Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel, who have no excuse for, like, being this stilted and awkward. <laughs> and instead of John Leguizamo, you get mid-sized sedan. I like that the, the Jeep driver wasn't supposed to be there that day. Yes, that's Brian O'Halloran from Clerks. Yep, that's him. You know, though, I even take fucking stock with that. Like, you know, the blob don't take itself too seriously. I'd argue the blob did take itself very seriously, and that's why it was a success. The blob's not winking at the audience, the original one. They truly tried to make a scary sci-fi horror movie. Uh, Is it cheesy now by today's standards? Yeah, of course. Is it silly? Yeah, sure. But at the time, it was fucking a big movie. Terrifying, huge hit, success. You know, that's just the thing, you know. He is so up his own ass when it comes to stuff like that. Like, like, dude, look, your inconsistency started at script level, not directing. You had no idea what the fuck you were trying to make, like, at all, clearly. And you were just, he's M. Night Shyamalan at the time. Yeah, you know, the village and Lady in the Water, you know, were not necessarily critical darlings. But, you know, Village still made a pretty penny. Lady in the Water, if I remember right, didn't do great. So he still had carte blanche to sort of make whatever he wants, and he just went in half-cocked. Like, there's there's no question this was not a fully sort of fleshed-out idea before the camera started rolling. It just couldn't have been. No, I think that's the thing, is that um, another reason why I would say prefer this over something like even a Lady in the Water is that movie, I think, has more overt kind of issues with being like, oh, hey, this is like, me trying to tell my story that you all just don't understand, where he literally casts himself as the author who can save the world with his stories, and also Bob Balaban is a movie critic that, like, hates movies, and it's just, like, there's no original cinema anymore. That is the M. Night Shyamalan I am far less of a fan of. Somebody doing that, or somebody like A Last Airbender or After Earth, where it feels like these are just, like, too self-serious and dull, as opposed to, like, at every single turn, like I said, they're making weird decisions in this movie. Like, even the scene earlier on where, like, John Leguizamo's taught, like, look, I've got to go over and see if my wife's in Jersey. Just like, oh, oh no, I'm so flustered, Mark Wahlberg. Can you cheer me up? Sure. How about some statistics? There's a 62% chance we can survive this. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Like, why are we stopping and talking about this when you're supposed to go off and fucking find your wife? Shit like that makes this movie, I think, consistently very fascinating. I, I can see why maybe if you're concerned and hung up about the logic or some of these other things, why it might be more of a deterrent but i 
really abandoned that from the get-go, and I'm just more fascinated to see dumb things like the footage of the guy's arms being ripped off by lions, and how it's just like, oh, this is the worst version of, like, the signs, like, alien coming into view and shit like that. Like, there's there's so much more fascinating stuff to where I'll spin this off into final thoughts as we've been talking about this movie for a while. Um, I think this is his most fascinating poorly executed movie in a way where i would say it is very entertaining to me um i don't think it's i think there's some sequences that uh work on just like a technical level with the way that the shots are composed but um all, mo many of the performances do not work very much and it is such a weird thing where even the way that he shoots r-rated material for the first time feels so weirdly half cocked we're just like oh this is what people want like blood and guts so we're gonna have a guy lay down in front of a lawnmower and then get run over shit like that it's just like this doesn't make any fucking sense but at the same time i find it very fascinating for all those reasons and i would say it's far more watchable than many of the movies that would follow up to this point uh before his blumhouse days um this is miles ahead of any of those and i would recommend over uh but tori what about your final thoughts on the happening probably have nothing really beyond what i already said i i kind of like the whole renewed opinion that i have on it you know like i said like in 08 i hated this i thought this was just incomprehensible garbage uh seeing it now i i have like an appreciation for it um it's really entertaining in spite of the filmmaker <laughs> and and the performances and uh i don't know I, I just enjoy the hell out of it it's 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 a fun film adam uh, i mean i I hate this movie still. I, I, I think it's boring. There there are some cool ideas here, but I, I don't think anything's really uh, executed well. It's a mishmash of just weird performances followed by even more baffling decisions. Um, and I just, you know, real quick, John Locke was almost a terrible friend, right? <laughs> can, we just, can we just say that? Like, he was just going to leave them with the daughter if they didn't catch him in time right, trying to get in that fucking Dante's I mean, game. also a terrible father by that extension. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends, dude. If you don't want to risk your daughter's life and stuff, like, I, I kind of get it. But at the same time, like, yeah, no, he's a piece of shit. But but he's leaving his daughter with adult children <laughs> to be taken care of. What are you talking about? He's a science teacher. Oh, good point. Fair enough. Yes, he is a science teacher. Right. Come on, man. And she's had tiramisu with Joey. So, you know, what are you going to do? The voice by M. Night Shyamalan when he's on the phone. Big surprise that M. Night Shyamalan shoehorned himself into this movie. No, I just think it's it's a dull movie, man. Like, I, this is probably only the second time I've ever watched it. I highly doubt there will be a third. Well, um, on that note, uh, here is a brief message uh, from the ESO crew that we fully endorse. Welcome to Dr. Geek's Laboratory. Dr. Geek here with another reminder that the ESO Network is pro-science and pro-vaccine. We urge you to be a superhero and protect yourself, your family, and your fellow geeks around the world. Don't be fooled by the forces of evil and their anti-science misinformation campaign. Consult the latest CDC guidelines, your doctor, and get the COVID vaccine today. All right, so now we're going to do the double redo in which uh, Adam, myself, and a guest um, uh, recommends uh, two movies for you to see from this particular topic that we're doing and uh, recommends you avoid two other ones. Uh, so um, for 2008 this year, uh, I'll go ahead and start 
with my choices here, uh, with my two good picks, but uh, the two ones I want to recommend are uh, one, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which I feel like was very popular at the time, but of the Apatow-class movies uh, that were very popular at this point, I feel like it's one of the ones that's kind of gotten lost in the shuffle. And I think it's a pretty stellar little uh, romantic comedy that has obviously a lot of the raunchier side of things. Um, I think Jason Siegel does a pretty good job with like both writing the script and being the lead actor in a way where I think it's very consistently funny. Um, I think he has a lot of great chemistry with both uh, his ex-girlfriend, Sarah Marshall, played by Kristen Bell, who's quite fun, and then also with Mila Kunis, who really, like, I think this was her big sort of movie debut. Obviously, she had been in, like, that 70s show and a few other movies before this, but I think this is, like, her breakout film performance in a way where she just, like, really livens up the screen whenever she's around. But there's a lot of really funny supporting turns, like Russell Brand. I think this is one of the few times he was pretty enjoyable when he came over um, as the Aldous Snow character. Or Paul Rudd is so fucking funny as the completely stoned out of his mind uh, fucking surf instructor. Which is like, hey man, when life gives you lemons, you say fuck the lemons and bail. She like that he's so fucking good. Jonah Hill's very funny in this movie. A lot of great people. Um, I have some issues with like the uh, sort of uh, third act thing that tries to get our two uh, lovers apart before they reunite. I think there's, I, I have a lot of problems with the way it kind of portrays the Sarah Marshall character at that point. But otherwise I think it's a really solid uh, one, especially of a lot of those Apatow movies I don't think hold up as well. I think this is one of the ones that really does. My other one is a bit more of an obscure movie called Happy Go Lucky, which was nominated for Best Original Screenplay and is a slice-of-life comedy about um, a primary school teacher in England who's played by Sally Hawkins. And she plays this incredibly enjoyable primary school teacher who is just living her life. She's like 30-something and she's still living with like a bunch of friends in an apartment. And other people question like, oh, don't you want to progress beyond this point? Um, don't you want to, like, starting a family and being married? And she's like, no, I don't really want to do that. And it's, like, a really fun, comforting little slice of life movie about just someone living their life in a way that's really positive and she's so enjoyable. Um, I, I really would recommend more people see this movie. It's a little underrated gem. Um, but for my bad, I have The Reader, which is a movie that we've talked about here a bit where it got Kate Winslet her first Oscar for some reason took her this long. And uh, I don't think it's a very good movie. If you're unaware, she plays a former Nazi who strikes up a um, love affair with a younger man, and he finds out, like, oh, you used to be a Nazi, and the whole thing is she can't read, and that's why she got, like, a lot of people killed, evidently, is that she couldn't read, like, the list of people being taken off to gas chambers or whatever. It's such a, like, bad miscalculation. Like, the prime example of bad Oscar bait to me, in a way that's just, like, I'm I'm stunned that this was, like, something that got her a fucking Oscar. She deserved it million times over for many other performances. I love Kate Winslet, usually. But this is, like, a disastrous turn from her. Um, and then uh, the other bad one I have here is Leatherheads, which was, um, we talked about George Clooney directing uh, a few episodes ago. And I think this was the start of his bad directing career after Good Night and Good Luck was so good. He followed up with this attempt to be a 30s screwball comedy where it's so much of like him trying to play Cary Grant in a way that's very unsuccessful despite how talented that dude is um, and how many comparisons he had to Cary Grant it is such a dire, unfunny mess despite Renee Zellweger is really trying as this like top reporter girl. Her talents are so wasted on the love triangle between her and also John Krasinski before he was at the Quiet Place guy. Um, was back when he was still on The Office, is in this movie, it's just like such a unfunny, poor, stupid version of like a, a, a lovable doof of a footballer in a way that I just, it, it's dire, honestly, to watch. It's, it's one of those very unfunny comedies. 
out of all viewers i've seen the the main comedies like uh forgetting scare marshall i can't agree more i think is super funny super sweet and charming endearing yes it's raunchy but it still holds up and yeah paul rudd is just great you know he's just so funny you know yeah i don't really like to put a number on things but i guess if i had to say it'd be 40 fuck (laughs) it's so good (laughs) that yeah leatherheads is a really piss poor attempt i i that movie i've only seen it once and i remember just really being upset with myself that i even tried it um and i haven't seen the other two but i've heard nothing good about the reader and uh i've never i don't think i even even heard of uh your other one so cool i thought the reader was just a yeah, it was just Oscar bait. Poor Oscar bait. Leatherheads was, I thought it was like charming when I saw it, but it was like, okay. George Clooney's not really like ha-ha funny for me as far as like that type of comedy for him to do that type of comedy. Yeah, I never saw Happy Go Lucky. Forgetting Sarah Marshall's fantastic. That might low-key be the best uh, Jed Apatow movie um, out of like those that came out just for the fact that it probably aged the better, the best out of all of them. Um, you know, just just saying. But, uh, yeah, and it's also the only time Russell Brand's on screen that he's not uh, insufferable. But, Adam, what are your uh, double redo choices? All right. So for the bad, I'll start with those. I have Mummy 3, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. It's very problematic in a lot of ways. A, it's overtly CG'd, which sort of became sort of the, the Mummy's thing, especially with, like, the ending of The Mummy 2 and then so on and so forth with sort of the rock scorpion creature. Um, but also... Look, I like Maria Bello. She's she's a fine actress, uh, but she is not Rachel Weisz. And this movie really, really hurt um, sort of from her absence. And I, I think that's sort of maybe the biggest nail in the coffin on this one. But it's, there's just a lot of dumb shit in this movie. Like, the, you know, there's Yeti and everything. Like, fuck, fuck off with this movie. It's a bad sequel. And uh, I unfortunately this is the way that franchise sort of ended, but in a way I, I, I'm kind of glad it did too. And then now if you're not counting the, I don't know how many Scorpion King sequels there are now, like nine of them or whatever the fuck, but uh, yeah, mummy three garbage. And then uh, also I have uh, a movie starring Mr. Wahlberg uh, from the same year, uh, Max Payne, which is just a fucking misfire of a movie. You know, the thing is about the Max Payne games, they were made to look like John Woo action movies. That was the point with the bullet time, the slow motion and all this stuff. You couldn't make that into a movie? Like, I don't understand the logic. Like Again, that might just be my catchphrase for the night. But instead of just making that cool movie with that cool story that it had and everything, you get this. And there's fucking griffins and angels and all the shit flying around. Like, what the fuck is even happening here? Terrible, terrible movie. Um, For my good, I have the Coen Brothers uh, Burn After Reading, which is hilarious. And talk about George Clooney being a comedic role. I'd argue this is his best sort of comedic turn and one of the best surprising death scenes in movie history it's just this movie is so good and for some reason kind of got lost in the fray and i don't really understand why and it's not really talked about that much still but i think it's a super super fun movie full of great character actor performances and also like a really funny brad pitt and a really funny john malkovich and a really it's just it's really good and then uh my other one is also sort of 
in the Apatow vein, it came out right around, you know, obviously the same year, but I have role models also with Paul Rudd and a never better Sean William Scott. I, it may be goon, but he's so funny in this. And Paul Rudd is so fucking funny in this. And it's one of those like, just quote along movies. There's so many funny, funny lines in this movie. There's some problematic stuff in it, of course, but you know, it's a comedy from 2008. There's, there's always going to be sort of, as time goes on, elements from especially raunchy comedies that don't hold up. But I think this one still holds up pretty good. I, I think it's a fun little movie. Is it one of the greatest ever? No, but I, I think you'll get a laugh out of it. Um, yeah, I've not seen Max Payne, uh, thankfully. I kind of avoided that one. Um, but uh, with the other ones, I mean, The Mummy 3 is kind of sad to me, if nothing else, because that was, I think, Brendan Fraser's last sort of gasp at stardom. Um, and it, it, you really can feel also that he's kind of constricted because apparently doing the other mommy movies and some of the other action movies he did, he really like messed him, his, up his back and you can kind of tell he feels a lot more stiff in that one. Also, the mummy three has one of the worst lines I've ever heard in which there is a scene where they're all in an airplane and a yak is next to the, um, comedic sidekick brother character whose name I forget, but, uh, he ends up throwing up the yak and then the brother's like the yak yacked oh my yeah, god fucking jonathan was always annoying in those movies though he he always was <sighs> but he became aggressively more annoying in the sequels as the only idea they had was like oh more yeah yeah um and you're too good i love burn after reading i do think that's very underrated i think it's probably because that was the coen's follow-up to you know country for old men everyone was more expecting something um, I, I guess a bit more in that vein as opposed to this is more in their comedic slant but i agree that's phenomenal particularly brad pitt is like such a stellar comedic actor with the bit with him and John Malkovich in the car talking about just like, you're riding in here on your Schwinn and Brad Pitt's like, you think that is a Schwinn? <laughs> such a fucking funny bit. And I agree, especially the, the death scene, the, the look on Brad Pitt's face is iconic in terms of just like <laughs> trying to surprise George Clooney and all falling apart. With the role models, I think that one is sort of a lost comedy gem of that time, I agree. And also it's David Wayne who did What Hot American Summer and it feels like him kind of trying to do a bit more of a mainstream comedy in a way that almost feels like, oh, you could have spun this off and done more kind of like funny but still a bit more mainstream comedies and it just never quite worked for him again doing that even though he's made fun movies like they came together and stuff like that afterward uh but yeah those are, i think some solid picks story do you agree uh, i agree on um uh role models uh definitely that's one of my favorite comedies burn after reading is like an underrated gem as far as like Owen brothers are, are, are concerned it's like in the vein of like a fargo but it's like a lot more fun a lot more energetic probably one of the best comedic performances i've seen out of brad pitt everyone just brought it uh, as far as that movie's concerned, um, Mummy Three. I'm not really harsh on Mummy Three because I actually enjoy the trilogy, even though, you know, I I hate that yak yak line. Obviously, um, Max Payne is one of the worst uh, video game adaptations ever because it's just such a fucking bore the entire time. You know, it shot well. I I was interested by like the style, especially visually, when I was seeing the trailer, and you know, I finally was able to rent it and see it. But it was just another misfire of trying to adapt video games that are already adapted from movies that Hollywood makes. So it's just like, that's, that's one thing I always have a criticism of video game adaptations for. So, and it, and it shows again, you know what I mean? And Max Payne's like a really terrible example. Adam, is that at least the worst Mark Wahlberg movie of 2008? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yes. 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 <laughs> Dude, Bo, Bo, Bo Bridges is the bad guy for fuck's sake. Oh, he actually tries though. 
<laughs> Jeff's yep. too busy fucking making Iron Man money, so you gotta oh, get Oh, and also, Mila Kunis is also uh, the oh, lead. The second right, I remember her from the trailers. That's true, she was also in that. But, but Tori, it's time for you. You have a few recommendations, and not so much recommendations for the Redo. Go ahead and do yours. Okay, so for my bads, uh, I'll start with the bads. Uh, my first bad is <laughs> the uh, the Day the Earth Stood Still remake that starred uh, Keanu Reeves, Jennifer Connelly, uh, young Jaden Smith. Um, just stupid remake that just was like it was nobody asked for this. It was unnecessary. I mean, Keanu Reeves is like this is kind of a role perfect for him playing this stone faced, unfeeling alien. Jaden Smith just being Jaden Smith, just being this like bratty, annoying preteen who just hates his stepmom and Jennifer Connelly doing the same tortured scientist routine she's done on like three or four other movies at this point. It's just, it doesn't come together and the effects just suck for a film that's supposed to be a remake of like one of the greatest sci-fi films of all time. So it's, it sucks. Now the other one is, uh, uh, it's, it's a Will Smith vehicle, you know, to bring back to, uh, Oscar bait. I, I, I offer the movie seven pounds where man, I don't even know where to start as far as describing this movie as to why people thought this was going to be like this dramatic gut punch. But just see it for yourself. See if the, 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 the gut punch, if you will, is a gut punch of like, you know, something that's earned or as much of a gut punch as somebody, you know, uh, in a Looney Tunes cartoon that gets tripped by Bugs Bunny because that's how fucking silly this movie is. It's ridiculous. <laughs> One of my goods is just an example as to why I, I do love certain aesthetics in movies even if it's like candy sweet saccharin or you know shallow if you will the first one is speed racer i fucking love that movie um i'm very appreciative of a movie like that getting made i, I kind of love these frenetic high energy uh, uh colorful films especially coming from the wachowskis visually stimulant doesn't necessarily adapt the anime well but it's still a fun ride my second good is a rather underrated film um it stars daniel craig uh, it's called Defiance. Um, I think having a film that's kind of more grounded as far as people like hunting Nazis or, or battling against the Nazis um, and not done in this sort of cartoonish Tarantino style like that, like what happens with uh, Inglorious Bastards. I, I appreciated the film at the time when it came out because I think Daniel Craig had a really great performance um, as well as I just like the visualist, like the visual style of it. And just, again, being this grounded uh, kind of film for what it you know for what it does and for the story um i mean of those i haven't seen defiance uh i've seen um the speed racer though that was a movie i did not like at the time um but then i went back to it like maybe a couple years ago when i was look, going through all the wachowski's movies and i did very much a 180 on it i really loved speed racer in a way i think because post that movie Big blockbusters did not go that fully, like, embracing the cartoonish, earnest kind of charm in a way that I think is sadly kind of missing for modern movies as much as, like, I have fun with, like, the Marvel stuff and some other, like, big blockbusters, but you don't get ones that's sincerely silly in a way that I wish we would get maybe more of. Um, but Day of the Earth still is a bore, I completely agree. And Seven Pounds is another one of those that it, it kind of feels like another Will Smith vehicle that would come later uh, with Collateral Beauty. Where you're just like, you thought this was a good idea to do. This was a thing you all agreed was good to do. <laughs> and it's like, it's astonishing. I think that is the movie that, like, after 2008 with, like, that and Hancock, Will Smith just didn't make movies for another, like, four years, pretty much, until, like, Men in Black 3 
came out. So um, he was, I think, trying to get Jaden Smith speaking to David Rose still to become a movie star in a way that kind of backfired. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, Seven Pounds is one of the more baffling bits of Oscar bait for sure, especially with, obviously, the, the Will Smith's fate in that movie it's just like what <laughs> wait this is a box jellyfish yeah a box jellyfish you mean don't ruin it they need to know <laughs> don't ruin this movie from over like 12 years yeah, ago yeah you're right Woody Harrelson gets brown contacts so you're supposed to be like oh those are Will Smith's eyes he ends up trying to donate like his organs and the only way he can do that is to commit suicide in the safest way which is to get stung by a jellyfish a box jellyfish in a, bed, in a hotel bathtub. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the original Watchmen ending. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, t- terrible film. Seven Pounds is absolutely garbage. Uh, Day of the Earth sits still. I can't agree more. It, it, it's just abysmal. They turn Gort into a swarm of flies or whatever the fuck. And the thing is, too, um, you know, yeah, it's a movie, a role that should be sort of perfect for Keanu Reeves with this, like you said, emotionless alien sort of curious about the human race and everything but he even fucking bombs in that role that movie is terrible it's just there's nothing good about it period and then uh you're good i have only seen speed racer once and much like thomas i was not a fan of it um maybe i should go back and revisit it but i i did not like it when i first saw it and then i have seen defiance and that is a great fucking call. I completely even forgot about that movie until you mentioned it. And I really, really like that movie uh, to the point to where after we're done recording, I'm going to see if I can find it and watch it. I, I really, really do enjoy that movie. I think Daniel Craig's fantastic in it. And it might be the best Jamie Bell's ever been in a movie as well. Uh, it's a really, really good movie. Well, those are all our picks for The Devil Redu. Uh, and we want to thank some people now uh, for being uh, involved with the show, like Chris Oliver, who does our intro and outro music used on the show listen more of his music chrisoliver.bandcamp.com thanks to christian thor lally for the artwork uh, follow him at night of water that's night with a k underscore of underscore water for more of his great artwork uh, on twitter and stuff like that um and also thanks to our patreon supporters where for just one dollar a month uh you all get to uh vote for movies that we cover like even the topic that we did this week, 2008, that was chosen by our patrons, our edgelord patrons, as we call them, and also get to listen to bonus podcasts that we do, um, including right as uh, this is coming out, uh, we would have recently posted our sort of media discussion uh, episode that we did about the Over the Garden Wall miniseries, which we recommend you listen, but also definitely watch that, like we mentioned in the show. It's on Hulu and HBO Max as of this recording. Uh, we definitely recommend you watch it. It would only be about an hour, 50 minutes long, because it's a short miniseries. Uh, and then listen to our episode, because uh, uh, we had a lot of very fun things to say about it. Oh, yeah, I can't highly recommend that show enough. Like, it, it, like just just watch it. It's so good. You'll be so happy that you did. You'll want to get a tattoo of the characters, like 100%. That's literally, I fought with myself, and I still might do it. Um, I, I absolutely love that miniseries. It's my favorite thing I've seen in a long, long time. But at least save a dollar of that so you can become a patron. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> do that. Yes, become a patron like Tori, uh, who uh, we love having as a guest, we love having as a patron, we love having as a friend to the show. Thank you, Tori. Um, do you have anything to plug? Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, um, at TCVB491. Or you could type Doom Poster in all uh, caps. You can find me there. I just retweet and tweet random thoughts like everybody else. Um, but yeah, uh, other than that, I got nothing else to plug. And um, 
Thanks for having me on again. I love doing this. Yeah, I'm glad you're alive. Because remember, <laughs> Thomas died. <laughs> That's an inside joke that you can get if you become a patron. He was dead, but he got better. Yeah, exactly. Find us uh, for our own antics on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. Um, we also do some, uh, if you want to submit some feedback either there or via email, bill at gmail.com, all spelled out. Um, if you can't support us on the Patreon monthly, uh, you can do a one-time purchase of some a merch over the ESOT public store. There'll be a link in the description where you can buy a t-shirt or a mug or a laptop case with our lovely logo on it. Uh, it helps out because we get a bit of a kickback uh, from all the purchases that are made of our individual stuff. So Adam, it would really help out if they did what? Hey, buy our merch. Have your mother buy our merch. But um, if you want to follow our own individual antics, I am at not the who's Tommy on Twitter, Instagram, and letterboxd. Uh, where I post my own musings about film and other things. And also I do some writing both at film-cred.com and marianithomas.wordpress.com. Also, I will be doing panels at DragonCon if you are, uh, you know, if you feel safe to go to the Atlanta area, where keep in mind they just recently announced that you can only get in if you have proof of vaccination and you're wearing a mask. Um, Yes, we would uh, definitely... Uh, recommend if you uh, have both those things available to you to definitely come on down because I'll be doing panels. I'll have a if you follow any of my social medias, you'll find a, the specific schedule. But I'm doing a panel about what we do in the shadows and David Cronenberg. I'm doing one on uh, David Bowie in horror. I'm doing uh, one about Fargo uh, in honor of its 25th anniversary. There'll be a digital panel about me talking about uh, both Halloween 2 and Friday the 13th Part 2. That'll be up for uh, all of you to see uh, if you want to stay at home. Um, and also, I'll be doing a panel about 1981, The Year of the Werewolf, uh, where we're talking about Wolfen. We're talking about American Werewolf in London. And we're talking The Howling. So I'll be doing panels about all of those. If you feel safe enough, uh, definitely come between September 2nd and the 5th. Yeah, I think you guys should go, and you should do it digitally. Or, or if you're safe, go because hey, Thomas likes to talk. What? No. What? No, <laughs> ma'am. Um, no, I uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Adam or Adam. That's A T O M underscore O R underscore A D A M. Uh, I'm probably gonna actually get rid of Twitter here soon, just cause I fucking just I hate Twitter so much. I just hate it. Uh, but, you know, get me on there if I'm still on there. And uh, I'm also on Letterboxd at Schwanton. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And for more of our antics, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on ESO, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network? Or if you want to hear the various episodes we did before we even joined ESO, go to our Podbean main feed. And if nothing else, if you can't buy that merch or you can't support us on the Patreon for the $1 a month, the completely free way to help us out is to uh, just rate, review, or share the show around, because that gets us more visibility. Yeah, remember how Tori said he, he likes to share things on Twitter? That's what you fuckers should be doing, too. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. I, I, you, that's why I'm quitting Twitter. But now, Adam, we got to do our picking for next week, and we got another very interesting episode that we'll be doing, um, where in honor of uh, Shang-Chi and the uh, Legend of the Ten Rings, we'll be talking about martial arts movies again. We've talked about it previously on the show. We'll be doing a bit of a rematch, as it were, 
for that particular topic, um, which will be interesting. And uh, you have two bad movies for this particular one. I have two good. Related to martial arts, we've assigned number between 1 and 10 for each of our choices. Uh, so we'll end up, uh, you know, getting one good and one bad, depending on Tori. We'll be actually doing the picking. But keep in mind, we do have a recent rule in here called the Godfather rule, where Adam and I both have a single veto that we have to use by May of 2022, on one movie, either a good or a bad choice, uh, where basically if somebody says the one choice, uh, one will ask, do you want to take the cannoli? And the other will have to either say no or respond with the magic words of actually, I'll take the cannoli to thus get uh, the other choice that the person had. So this will be very interesting. I'm curious about this. Tori, for my two good martial arts movie choices, please pick a number between one and ten. I'm going to pick... Eh, you know what? I'm going to stick with uh, lucky number seven. Okay. Right on the dot, number seven, I have um, a movie from a martial arts master, uh, a true uh, icon who I've unfortunately never seen a non-American film of this man. I have Jackie Chan's original police story. Oh, shit. Now, Adam. Nope, nope, nope. Don't even have to ask. Don't want the cannoli. Okay. Love that movie. Okay, so we'll be talking about that then. Though, on the other side, over at number two, I had a more recent one uh, that I heard is quite good. I had the original It Man movie. Ooh, also very good. Very, very good. Great choices all around. Yeah. Look at well, you, Thomas. Well, uh, maybe the student has become the master. But now, Tori, yeah, pick number two, one, ten for Adam's two bad choices here. All right, bad choices. Uh, you know what? Do it again. Lucky number seven. Let's do it. Alrighty, at number nine, I have, uh, it'll be the first movie we've covered uh, starring this man. It's the Steven Seagal, DMX, and Tom Arnold film, Exit Wounds. Yay. Woo! I fucking love that film. Oh, God, why? (laughs) (laughs) I have an unabashed love for any film starring DMX, good or bad. Well, let's R.I.P. to Mr. DMX, of course. Um, Thomas, yes. do you want to take the cannoli? Um, you know, I'm not as well-versed in the Seagal of it all, um, but I know you um, are a big fan, and I think it's about time maybe we covered a movie of his, because I can tell you right now we're never doing an episode devoted specifically to Seagal. We, we need to definitely cover him, I think, on the show in particular, so I will not be taking the cannoli on that. Alrighty, and then for at number one, I had, which is maybe one of my least favorite movies I've ever seen in the theater. I have the awful sort of spoof slash just garbage fire that was Kung Pao, Enter the Fist. Ah, man. I love Kung Pao. That's like a cult-like comedy right there. I love it going back to my childhood, man. I hate it. Can I take the cannoli and change it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't have, like, a hate for Kung Pao. Um, I don't love it as much as, like, it does have a cult following that I'm not necessarily a part of. But I think it has, like, enough fun moments to where, like, I don't hate it necessarily. But I don't think I would have a lot of fun discussing it on the show compared to a Seagal joint. So that'll be very interesting. Uh, (laughs) Exit Wounds and Police Story. Two very interesting ones. But that is the end of our show. And until then, everybody, uh, you know, just be nice to plants. Don't fuck with them, especially unless they're like a plastic house plant. <laughs> I got nothing. I hate that movie. God, fuck. You know what? Say hello to your mother for me. 
This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.